So the topic of the day is good news needing to be spread. And I was thinking about this, about what good news is and when it needs to be spread around. And it got me thinking about World War II. And in 1945, as most of you all know, World War II ended. And on the 8th of May, which is a victory for Europe day, the Nazi party formally surrendered to the Allies. And all across Western Europe, celebrations would have erupted, and they did. Uh, we not only had victory, but much more importantly than just that, we had the end to the violence. And it will probably be no shock that, to know that even people on the opposing side would probably have been relieved that the war was ending. It was over, you can breathe a sigh of relief. The ceasefire in 1945 is triumphant good news. Nobody in that whole sphere, most of the world, nobody is exempt from this good news. The impact spreads all across the world and the news spreads from newspaper to newspaper, radio, people shouting in the streets, like wildfire. You can't stop from telling people the war is over. It can't be kept close to your chest. You can't stop spreading it. So this picture up here, anyone know what that is? Who's that? Who's that? Yeah, that's Churchill. Yeah. So that, that is a picture of him announcing the surrender of the Nazi party. Crowds of people. It is a celebration. It would be a very, very rare occurrence to find anyone in the UK going, oh, that's, oh I'm disappointed now. I wanted it to carry on. Towering good news. People spreading the news to people. People hearing the news. It's great. Everything is great. There's no catches. There's no clauses. There's no buts. You're not trying to sell something. It just is great. You know what it is, you know what it looks like when you see it, you don't need to sugarcoat it, it's brilliant. Now on a smaller scale to that, I was thinking, anyone who's had a baby will probably know immediately that they want to go and share that news with their friends and family. It's good news. They want, oh, when, I had, when we had Eden, she's over there asleep, first thing I wanted to do was tell people that I loved, oh, we, you know, Colleen's had the baby, baby is safe, and it's good. I'm not trying to sell this to them, I just want them to share in the joy of this new life. Um, and again, you recognize that it's just good news. It's obvious what it is. Truly good news is uplifting, it's life-altering, it's not temporary, it does not require you or anyone else to sign a contract, it's not really something you can earn, it just is. It is almost universally a gift, and it is not shackled by culture or nation or money or style. It is just news that erupts across everybody. And then I got to thinking that nowadays it's quite hard to find truly good news. We live in a world that is saturated in the flow of information. Um, but much of it may look sort of good, but most of the time the news we get is either bad, controversial, and a bit juicy, somewhat terrifying, maybe mundane, maybe a bit of soap opera, you know, a bit of drama, but none of it's really good. And today I want to look away from bad news or drama or trolling or controversial stuff, maybe not controversial stuff. I want to look into something that I believe is truly good news and that people here who call themselves Christians will recognize as truly good news. Good news is not dead. And I would like us to all join together and say, no, it's absolutely not dead. There is something that is still here that is truly good. It is alive and it is thriving. And hopefully when you see it, you will want to show it to everyone you meet. But first, what is the good news? Let's take it back. So in Luke 4, 
18 to 19, Jesus bursts onto the scene with these following words. He comes into the synagogue and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is Jesus' first public address, um, not counting any time he spent in the temple as a young boy. And he states that the prophecy he's quoting here from Isaiah, I think, um, the good news to the poor, freedom for prisoners, sight for the blind, is going to be fulfilled that day in the people's hearing. The good news is a time of favor from God, where those who are considered less than worthy will be encouraged, freed, and healed. And before I want to dive into some examples of this good news playing out, I have to say that in our world, while our living conditions in our nation today are far, far superior to those 2,000 years ago in Imperial Rome, we still have the poor, we still have the prisoners, we still have the blind, spiritually and literally. We still have people who might be rich in wealth but poor in spirit. All these aspects that Jesus is talking about applied then, they apply today. We still have those that society has turned their backs upon and this good news that Jesus is about to proclaim 2,000 years ago is just as relevant now as it was then. And we as Christians are tasked with the honor of sharing it with the world. Now, I've paraphrased this next bit as God with us. That is my headline for this next bit. The Bible, if you've studied it from cover to cover, it's one long narrative split across various forms of literature. If you don't know that already, the basic paraphrase of the Bible goes something like this. God creates the world. God creates mankind as his masterpiece in his image. Through various tragedies, mankind and God are split apart. And mankind find themselves kind of all bound to terrible things, literally in slavery sometimes, and in lots and lots of trouble. And then God, in his grace, continually is trying to reunite with his people, free them from their chains. Now, if you've read the story of Exodus, you'll know that God does this, sets them free, they come into the promised land, and through the founding of the nation and the tabernacle which they create, God would come and meet his people. And then things go wrong, and then sometime later in the book of Kings, we see that they create this nation, they put a king in there, and then Solomon eventually builds a temple, and the temple is the holy place where God would come and meet with his people. But then things go wrong, and they get exiled, they get taken in slavery to Babylon, and then they're there going, well, what do we do now? And through various prophets, God promises that there will be a Messiah who will come and set them free from their bondage. Now, the Jewish people expect their Messiah most likely to be like a warrior king or one of the judges who would come with a flaming brand, ignite the hearts of the nation, literally set people free and conquer the world and set these guys up, the Jewish nation, especially oppressor over the oppressor tyrant Caesar. But that is not actually what the good news is, and that is not what the good news is going to be today. When the Messiah steps into the story, he does so in sandals and with the power of his heart and his voice, rather than the power of swords and arms. In fact, the first thing we see Jesus do as a man is not stride in and take command by force, but receive baptism in humility and begin traveling around the nation, meeting people. He picks up some disciples from all over the place. He meets some fishermen, working class boys, a couple of zealots, terrorists. Now you might be going, no, 
Yes, the zealots, the Jewish zealots, terrorized the Roman world because they believed the Jewish people were subjugated. They were terrorists. Don't want to invite terrorists in here? Jesus would have done. Tax collectors. Tax collectors in the Jewish world were like blood traitors. They would steal money off their own people to give it on to themselves. These are the most hated people in the world. Jesus collected people with bad tempers. He collected people up who were cowards. He collected people who were thieves. And he collected someone, or people, who he knew would betray him when things got rough. This is a sharp contrast to most powerful people in the world who collect people around them who are also powerful to keep them propped up in strength. They need some people, powerful people need powerful people to keep them happy. Jesus, in his first actions, reveals a new kind of leader in a new kind of kingdom under a new kind of God. One who merits people from all walks of life. So, before I go any further, a couple of questions. What do people think the good news is? What's the gospel? Shout out a few answers. What's the gospel? <laughs> Jesus coming to earth. Okay, any others? Any other? Jesus, what's the gospel? Save us from sins. Anything else? You're very quiet, guys. It's like you've never opened the Bible before, ever. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm only messing with you. Um, most people alive today, most people, especially people who aren't believers, and maybe some who are, when asked this question, what is the gospel, what is Christianity, they'll probably say something of the following, forgiving sins, turning other cheeks, going to heaven when we die, saving ourselves from hell, not being fun at parties, being hypocritical about money, denying science, uh, believing in big fairy guy in the sky who grants wishes. These are things that I have looked at and swirled around when asking people, what do you think of Christianity? And those are a few. And even some Christians, if you ask them what Christianity is, they will only really be focusing on life after death, heaven when we die. All the time. What's Christianity? Oh, it's about going to heaven when you die. And yes, no, don't get me wrong, I'm not going to stand up and go, that's not anything to do with it. It absolutely is. But life after death is not the whole scope of what Jesus is doing in the good news. It's more than that. I started by paraphrasing the Bible into this narrative of God trying to reunite with his people. God desperately seeks to be reunited with his people so that he can truly walk with them as their God and king. Now, the Jews believed that this meant a kingdom on earth that would destroy anyone that's getting in their way. But that's not what happens. Um, the good news is, not only for when we die, it was a walking, talking, living, physical person who wanted to put good news in people's lives at that time as they were living. Jesus, as God in flesh, walked the good news in the present, and it wasn't just for far off. So John 10.10, if anyone knows it, is the next verse. I want to jump up there, just to throw this out. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but most importantly, I have come that I may have life and have it to the full. Life is now. Jesus about life lived now, and then all the days you have yet to live and beyond. Yes, there is an end game, and yes, Jesus does absolutely save us from sin and hell. And yes, when the new heaven and new earth will be like him. But the good news is not just for far away, it is for now, and it still is. God walks among his people, but not as a judge or an executioner like they would have expected. God starts to take the form of a friend, a tutor, a peer, a brother, and knocks down barriers that we create in our culture. I want to look at the story of the woman at the well. Um, there's, it's quite a long story. I've broken it down into a few bits. But let's just get the verses up of the woman of the well so I can kind of dive into 
good news living now and what I really want us to take away from this. In John 4, Jesus has to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Immediately, cultural barriers are pushed aside. A Jewish man, 2,000 years ago, is far superior to a Samaritan woman. But not only does Jesus initiate this interaction, he starts it, he asks her first. He then confirms that if she was to ask something of him, if she recognized who he was, who God was, she would have been given the gift of God. The cultural barriers are swept aside, and hundreds of years of racist culture like that is done. And all he had to do was sit down with her and honor her by treating, treating her like she mattered, because she did. So the next bit of verses, I've jumped a few, jumped a few things here. There's a few verses on. Jesus told her, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And so Jesus said to her, yes, you're right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is you've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. But what you've said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Now, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, not on this mountain and not in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is coming from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, and they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus breaks down this cultural barrier. He's talking to her. But she's a woman with five failed husbands. That's a pretty big barrier to entry. That's pretty bad. And what does he do? No, no, he's still there. He's still talking to her. He doesn't seem, it's not that he doesn't care, but he doesn't seem to hold that against her as a reason to leave. He can see that the reason she's had so many failed relationships, it probably isn't because she's a dirty, evil, subhuman piece of scum, but probably because something in her heart and in her spirit has been broken through hundreds and hundreds of years of cultural oppression and subjugation and racism and being told that you're worthless. How can anyone who believes they're worthless live a life of high worth? It's extremely difficult. The culture she's lived in all this time has defined her. She's got herself into a mess. She probably hates herself. She's clearly desiring to know who God is, but her culture has stopped her from doing so. And Jesus comes into the trend and he says, look, mountain, Jerusalem, doesn't matter. What God really wants is here. I don't care what you look like. I don't even really care what you've done. If here, if in your heart, the truth of you is you are really seeking after God, then you can walk with God. How often do we destroy the hearts of people because we insist things have to be done a certain way? Like, I'm not saying that 
anything can go all the time, because that's chaos. But there are some things people will have walked into the room this morning thinking, maybe they'll judge me. My sister does this all the time. She feels really uncomfortable going to church because she thinks people will judge her, people who don't know her. That, that is a life where she has believed that she has to act and look and be a certain way before she can walk with God. You know, any other way is blasphemy, right? Any other style is useless. Spirit and truth sweeps all that aside. All the other stuff is material, the stuff we invent. It doesn't matter where or who you are or what you've done. If your heart and spirit are truthfully seeking God, then a gift of God is ready to be given to you. And then we finish this particular story with this lovely little bit, a few verses later, that many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him, Jesus, because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did, which is a harsh admission because we know that she's not proud of what she's done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two more days. We don't know where he was, where he was going. He could have been really pressed for time. He stayed two more days. And because of his word, many more became believers. The Samaritans believed in Jesus because of his words, but they were words spoken in person over two days. That he wasn't far off handing out leaflets or through a TV screen. He was with them. Jesus is amongst the people, living with them, eating with them, speaking with them, as if they really matter. And many more start to believe. So the next little story I want to jump in, similar theme, is Zacchaeus the tax collector. Anyone know this story? Zacchaeus? Yeah, maybe. Um, I think I was probably about eight when I heard the story of Zacchaeus, and all I could just picture a small, fat, ugly guy hiding in a tree. So let's get the verses from the next lot up. Fantastic. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and very wealthy, but he wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, and uh, since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to uh, be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to, said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody, which he definitely had, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man seek, came to seek and save what is lost. Now Zacchaeus isn't poor. Jesus comes onto the scene and he declares good news to the poor. Zacchaeus isn't poor. But this is a rich man who's become rich off the backs of his fellow people. And Jesus comes to him and says, I need to dine with you. I need to come to your house. I bet no one wants to come to Zacchaeus' house. No one will willingly go to his house because he'll just steal from them. But Jesus says, I have to dine with you. You. This man is probably hated by everyone. And again, he probably hates himself. Um, he is like Scrooge to me. Have you ever read or watched A Christmas Carol? It's like that, cold and heartless and rejected love because of whatever reasons, cynical. And I believe Zacchaeus to be like this. He really, really wants that connection with people, but through his life, he has turned it down. And when Jesus comes into the scene and says, hey, I want to eat with you, he must have been shocked. And, and his response 
is to suddenly change the way he sees other people and start being a kinder, more generous person. Today, salvation has come to this house, for this man too is a son of Abraham. Hang on. <laughs> the good news then is a story of how God is ushering in his kingdom by coming among the people at last and showing the world that his kingdom is going to be operating under different rules. Um, as I hope the above examples have shown, the good news is that God's kingdom is open to everybody, no matter who you are or what you've done or where you're from. And I know some people still might be thinking, except that thing that I did or that thing that I did. No, terrorists Jesus hung out with. Really, these are not great people. God's kingdom is living in the present and is all about the fullness of life now. It's not just life will be terrible now, but one day maybe. It's no, no, Jesus wants you to experience life in its fullness now by coming together in relationships. The good news is all about breaking down barriers to relationships. God wants to walk with all mankind uniting them together, holding out the hand of friendships. And, don't get me wrong, there is the astonishing death and resurrection of Christ, the breaking of death and sin, the fulfillment of the promise to open up the way to eternal life. But don't just, don't just hang your Christianity just on that. It's for you now as well. But this is a talk about spreading the good news. Why spread it, though? I know that might sound stupid, but you've heard it, cool. But why spread it? Now, at the end of Matthew, Jesus says to his disciples, the Great Commission, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I am with you always to the very end of the age. Is that why we feel that we should go around spreading the gospel? That's not really a rhetorical question. Uh, perhaps it is. Um, has anyone ever had a Jehovah's Witness knock on their door? Yep, right. Um, I might be wrong in this, but I think part of the reason they're doing that is because they want to feel that they have earned good works, which gets them you know, gold stars to get to be one of the 144,000 people that go to heaven, right? Okay, so earning the way to heaven or earning the way out of hell, is that why we feel that we should spread the gospel? Because we want to earn brownie points? Some of you are nodding, some of you are just staring, it's fine. Um, I've seen plenty of churches hand out leaflets in the street proclaiming that Jesus loves them. Uh, I've seen a guy in town with a billboard with uh, questionable verse choices written on it. You know, repent, hell, fire, etc., that kind of stuff. I've walked past people in town, you might have too, um, talking on a microphone quite loudly in the middle of Newport High Street. I can't actually understand what he's saying, but I know he's saying something about the gospel. And I kind of get the impression that these are valiant efforts to spread the word, but if you're like me, or many 21st century people, you don't really want to be stopped in the street, and you don't really want to be cold called in your house, you don't want to be handed junk mail, or advertised in general, or faced with large accusatory signs about repenting and hellfire, no matter how theologically correct they may be. I sometimes fear that too many of us, and I've done this as well, feel like we have to share the gospel, and we have to win souls, and we have to let everyone we know know that we're a Christian, because otherwise we're bad Christians. But if you've ever had to do something, it's robbed of its 
you know, it gets you rob the desire to do it. If you have to do something, it's quite hard to then really desire to do something as well. Um, as a young Christian, I believed that I had to witness to every single person all the time. And I didn't really twig that the first thing I was called to do was to love the people I was around and to get to know them and honestly join them in life. Not, not join them in life so that I could convert them, because that's not honest. Genuinely get down with them in life and experience life and show respect and love to them without a clause, just because they existed. And then if the chance to witness came about because they knew I loved them, the door was much more open. Um, it wasn't work, it was relationship. But if we have not yet walked in the love of God and learned that we ourselves in Christ are worthy of love, then we will possibly find ourselves trying to earn our salvation by spreading good news rather than spreading good news by loving people we're with. In 1 John 4, the letter writes, Love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. And importantly, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, who he has not seen. When Jesus commissions his disciples to go out and spread the good news, they don't do it because God's commanded it, and I best do it. They do it because they love Jesus, and they know they are loved. The worst kind of people and they know they're loved, and that totally changes how they see other people. So they can go out and love other people, and happily and joyfully spread the good news. They had failed and been forgiven. Um, and when you understand that you are loved, and you're a special and unique human being, you can then look at other people around you as loved, unique human beings. And if you really believe that, and if you know it, you'll be able to go to them and love them and then open that door to friendship that can build bridges needed to heal the wounds of the world and then perhaps in time make disciples of all nations. If your first thing is, right, I've got to fill these seats, I've got to tick these boxes, you'll just shut people off because it's yet another barrier to entry. But if your only MO is, God loves them just for existing, so will I. You're not going to go up to people and go, I'll be your friend, but first let me tell you about Jesus. That's, cut that right off. My mum has a devotional, and the book she said the other day, she's like, oh, it's all about witnessing. And I kind of clenched up. But the actual passage was saying, the only, the only thing you need to be a good witnesser is you need to be fully in love with Jesus. That's it. Because then when you're fully in love with Jesus and you're filled with that, it doesn't matter where you are. You go out and you'll love other people. That is it. Jesus, full of God, just went out and loved people. And then they kept asking him questions and he started teaching them. The world 2,000 years ago was crippled with racial and national barricades. There are super races 2,000 years ago that saw others as subhuman. And there's warfare, and there's class struggles, hearts of stone. Doesn't sound much different to now, to be fair. And Jesus showed them a new way by going out joining in, giving value and honor and love without a sales pitch, without a clause, love first always. And in so doing, created a kingdom 
that is founded in community, one that cares deep down from God to us and back in all directions. Nothing's changed in this. It's only us that put up barriers that say, no, 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 it doesn't mean that. Um, was it last week that Mal was it Malcolm gave the talk last week? Or was that the week before? I'm a bit lost. <laughs> he shared that what he's doing in Greece, he's just going out and offering hope to the refugees. He's not going out trying to convert the refugees. He's just getting out amongst them because he sees that they are in need and he loves them. That's the best way of making disciples. It's not fancy lights. It's not trying to put on a good show so that you all come back and get entertained. If, if you just get entertained by this, you've not met Jesus. You can meet Jesus and then be entertained, but if your goal is right, we need to put on a good show and get the advertising and the marketing and put on a performance and we need to have the best singers and the best speakers, that's not the kingdom of God. That's just a good business. There are churches, you might have been to them, and they look amazing, and they'll be convinced that if they've they got to put on a good show because otherwise people won't come in. Since when was Christianity about getting people to come in? Jesus didn't sit in the temple constantly and wait for people he went out he was a good speaker but people didn't listen to him just because he was a good speaker they listened to him because he loved them why listen to me if i don't love you don't listen to me if i don't love you don't listen to any church that doesn't love you and so i got in a bit of a rant then <laughs> oh dear you can't sell the gospel i've tried it it doesn't work throw those leaflets in the bin can't entertain you into believing in God doesn't work as soon as the entertainment stops there are other things for you at the end of Acts 28 we see Paul the most famous apostle probably of all his story ends without any fanfare there's not a big crescendo it really ends kind of flat um, at the end of Acts 28 it says for two years Paul stayed there in his house rented house, he's not rich, and he welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's the end of Paul. That's the end of Paul. No confrontation with Caesar, no dramatic martyrdom, no miracles, no great speeches and convincing oratory that shocks the Roman world. No. He's in his house, his rented house, doing whatever. People come to him and he welcomes them in teaches them, he tells them what he believes, and then they go out. Making disciples has nothing to do with bums in seats. Nothing to do with making money. Nothing to do with making you feel warm and fuzzy. Paul welcomed any who came to see him with humility and love. We have houses. I have a house. You probably have a house. It might be a small house, big house. You might have a room. I don't know. You can share that house. You can invite people in. You can cook them dinner. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, I want to eat with you in your house. Such honor. That broke his barriers down. You'll know people who might never have been invited to your house. And you might think they won't mind, but maybe they do. Maybe if you invited someone that you think might be lonely to your house, that might completely break down their barriers, show them they're loved. We need to get out of here into your real life, with your real houses and your real jobs, Get alongside the people you meet every day, not in here, and show them that their work and their struggles and their relationships matter, and that we really care. Jesus and Paul did that. The disciples did that. And the good news spread. 
And the good news was that God doesn't want to keep himself boxed into this. God always wanted to walk with you in all of your struggles, all the time, because he cares and you're valued. And so that you can understand that and care and value all the other people, even if you don't think. Hmm. So think about people in your life who need a friend. Maybe you, need, you know someone who might just need to be listened to or might be, need someone who might need to be invited to your house for food. Someone at work who might be a bit odd, doesn't fit in, maybe they just need a friend. Homeless people that you pass, you might not want to give them anything because they'll spend it on drugs, but maybe if you chat to them, they'll feel valued. The good news moves with our hands and our feet and our voices. And it might get people in here, which is great. But most importantly, it's for you to understand that you need to take it out. Um, let's not seek to just win souls and earn our place in heaven. Let's spread the good news to our fellow people through our loving actions. And then perhaps when the time is right, they'll ask you to tell them your testimony as well. The good news is love without clauses. And we are tasked with spreading it. That is our great honor and our great work. So if you believe it, we need to get out of here. And that is the end of January's same Jesus New 